I'm Leila Saad, and my life is driven by one burning question. How can I become a good ancestor? How can I create a legacy of healing and liberation for those who are here in this lifetime and those who will come after I'm gone? In my pursuit to answer this question, I'm interviewing changemakers and culture shifters who are also exploring that question for themselves in the way that they live and lead their life. It's my intention that these conversations will help you find your own answers to that question too. Welcome to Good Ancestor Podcast. Welcome, welcome everybody to episode one. We are here for the very first episode of Good Ancestor Podcast. I am your host, Leila Saad, and I am so excited to be here. For our very first episode of Good Ancestor Podcast, I'm speaking with a trailblazing woman who is creating an incredible legacy of good ancestorship, especially as it relates to dismantling white supremacy, unpacking white feminism, and creating space for the healing and liberation of people of color, especially of black people in America. I'm talking about Rachel Cargill. Rachel hi. is an... Hi, Rachel! <laughs> Rachel is an activist, a writer, and a lecturer. Her activist and academic work are rooted in providing intellectual discourse, tools, and resources that explore the intersection of race and womanhood. Her social media platforms boast a community of over 140,000 people where Rachel guides conversations, encourages critical thinking, and nurtures meaningful engagement with people all over the world. Rachel is one of the incredible black women that I've had the pleasure of witnessing and growing alongside over the past year. And it's with great joy and excitement in my heart that she is our very first guest on Good Ancestor Podcast. So welcome to the show, Rachel. Thank you so much. That was the introduction of my dreams. <laughs> I had to do you justice. <laughs> I'm, uh, I feel like this is like... Uh, a conversation that has really been needing to be had by the two of us, you know, and I'm really excited to be hosting you and to, to be diving deep with you today. Thank you so much. I am over, I don't even think overjoyed is a strong enough word. I'm so thrilled to be chatting with you right now. Okay, my love. Um, the very first question that we're going to open with, who are some of the ancestors, whether living or transitioned, familial or societal, who have influenced you on your journey? As I've been diving into this conversation at the intersection of race and womanhood, one of the biggest ways that I've been able to both become rooted and feel like I have a space to grow into has been really deep diving into the women of color, particularly Black women who have been doing this work um, in the past. So women like Anna Julia Cooper, Mary Church Terrell, these women who I didn't even know about because of the way the system hides these heroes of ours who have been doing this type of work, but I didn't even know about them um, until I picked up a book from a woman who was selling books on the sidewalk in Brooklyn. And wow. I I picked up a book that said 19th century black women, the writings of 19th century black women. And I picked up the book and you know what? It ended up being a compiled transcript 
of lectures as well as like newspaper articles and magazine articles from women from the 19th century, from black women who have been doing exactly what you and I are doing today. And it was as if someone had compiled, you know, to compare it to now, if someone had compiled all of my Instagram posts, all of your blog articles and put them into a book and said, this is what people, this is what black women of this time were doing to combat a system that was never made for them. And it just completely blew my mind that, you know, what the work that we're doing is nothing new. It's just our turn. And so I've really been indulging in reading what other Black women were doing when it was their turn. So those women in particular, and also looking at, you know, the Maya Angelou's and um, even if we move it to today, the Brittany Coopers, the women who have been trailblazers in giving us research content and critical dialogue, and even as simple as the words to use in, in expressing ourselves um, in this conversation about race, these are the women who have just given me such strong rooting and such radical hope as I continue to do this work. Wow, Rachel, I, I just got chills. Like, you have no idea how meaningful that is to me. Um, a big part of why I claimed for myself this purpose of wanting to become a good ancestor and why we're even here having this conversation right now is precisely exactly the kind of story that you're talking about. So last year I stumbled across the writings of um, Audre Lorde mm -hmm. and she changed my life. And, yeah. you know, when you, when you were saying about this book, um, was like if 19th century black women had 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 Instagram accounts and, yeah. <laughs> and blogs. And it's like I mean, that's how I felt when I was reading Audrey's work that, wow, first of all, nothing's new. Yeah. Right? She could be talking about something I experienced today. Yeah. Right. And then also, though, that, you know, that, that you, you made this really great point. You said the work that we're doing is not new. It's, it's our, it's just our turn to do it. Yeah. And so that for me, like, you know, there could be, you could say like, okay, nothing's changed. So that could be a source of feeling like disappointment or feeling um, like, what's the point of doing it? And there definitely is that feeling of still, we're still here yeah. having these same conversations. But for me, I also find that where I gain strength and when I'm feeling lost and I'm feeling confused and I'm feeling, I don't know what my next steps are. I don't, I need to recenter. I return to those writings. Yeah. Because yeah. they, they did, they came before and they've been through it. Yeah, for sure. Now, it's a, it's yeah. a source of, ref, it's, it's both a source of, uh, you know, research in the terms of going back and seeing what has been said, but it's also a space of reflection, mm. seeing, our, seeing ourselves in these women, seeing our strengths, seeing our struggles, seeing, you know, being able to laugh with them in regards to the responses they were getting from society at the time and being like, yep, seen that, heard that, been there, done that. Um, but also being able to really pull from, okay, what was their response? Where did they still find their strength? Where did they still find this creative passion? Because, you know, doing this work is a, is, isn't just a source of, um, I don't know, intellect, it's also a source of creativity to be able to continuously show up with something. It takes a sense of, uh, a, bit of creative 
force. Um, and so there's just so much of their existence has been a supplement to what I'm doing. And it's, I just value it endlessly. Mm. I really appreciate you sharing that. That just made me feel all fuzzy and warm. <laughs> like we're in the right place having the yeah. right conversation, you know? Yeah. Yeah. You know, one of the things that um, in, in talking about reading those writings of women from the past, um, in addition to kind of, as you said, the kind of intellectual discourse where I found, where I have found really great um, comfort in is reading about their internal journey, their personal journey, yeah. themselves as people who were black, people who were women, um, yeah. and, you know, had their own stuff going on, you know, outside of what society, um, the, the, the issues that they had to deal with in society, but their own personal journey as well. I'm really interested in not only speaking to change makers um, and the work that they're doing out in the world, but also speaking to change makers and understanding what is the journey like for you? You know, it's yeah. so easy for us to see someone who has a big platform is making a great impact and think they are superhuman, right? Yeah. Um, I, I'd really be interested to hear about what your journey is like, your internal journey has been like. Yeah, I think this work has been so interesting because it's not like I, you know, I don't think any of us woke up one morning and were like, you know what, I'm going to start working on white supremacy. <laughs> you know, right. it was, it's something that we kind of roll into through our personal experiences. And then it kind of just becomes such an expression of self in a way. And so um, I, I always say I was highly prepped for this as a young girl, because I grew up in an all white neighborhood. I was often the only black girl in a space. Um, I also had to very much grapple with my identity as a black woman in America when I was confronted with the ways that I was quote unquote different from my black family because of the way that I grew up around white people. Mm. And um, whether it was the way that I talked or the type of music I was into or the way that I preferred to dress, um, there was always this type of uh, grappling that was happening between um, having some hard definition of what being black was, as well as just enjoying what I enjoyed for whatever reason. And so I think subconsciously all through my life, I've been having these conversations with myself. And then as I became an adult and um, I had the words, the language uh, to start having this conversation out loud, it has shifted into this, um, this grand reckoning with who I am as a black woman in the world. And so I think that so much of trying to find my identity as a child has put me into this space of feeling incredibly powerful now that I've found it, or incredibly mm -hmm. em empowered, I should say, now that I've found it. Um, and so coming into this space has made me hyper aware of things that, not just hyper aware now, but hyper aware of retrospectively. So now as I, most of my work is on Instagram, but when I share, you know, some things on Facebook where I have a lot of my white friends from when I was younger, I've been hyper aware of like, how are they responding? And how does that show me who they were while I was there in their space, while I was there in their world back in Ohio? And how are, you know, their adult parent, you know, I'm Facebook friends with some of my friends' parents, like how are they re responding? And, um, it's been this very full circle moment of how 
race has played a role, how my blackness has played a role, how my womanhood has played a role all throughout life, uh, where the little nuances of each of those identities showed up and um, kind of seeing it now in this big, bold way is both us is both like a sigh of relief, like, ah, oh, now I can finally talk about this thing um, in depth with this intellectual discourse because it means so much to me because it was so much of who I was. So it's both the sigh of relief as well as this, um, you know, this excitement to finally deep dive into, I don't, when people ask me, what am I studying in school? I tell them, you know, anthropology and women's studies, but really what I'm studying is myself. I'm studying what it's like to be a black woman and doing in-depth research in the world. And so it's like, I'm now in this space to really deep dive into who I am in a way that both commands um, critical discourse from others in my world and also pulls from a very academic space to where I'm getting to learn about ancestors, I'm getting to learn about statistics, I'm getting to learn about systematic issues and how all of those relate to me as an individual and my role in this country. Mm, I really love what you said there about what I'm really studying is myself. Yeah. Um, because, you know, I know that a, a big part of the good ancestor work that you're doing in the world is around white feminism, right? And so people are like, oh, Rachel, she's the, she's the one who does the white feminism lectures. But really, mm -hmm. that's not the driving yeah. force behind your work is not to it's not to help white women, it's to, right? <laughs> Absolutely, and they get so confused. They get right. so confused. <laughs> so, right. I, I have to check people often when they say, you know, thanks for serving us white women, thanks for teaching us white women, thanks for whatever way they'd like to center themselves in the work that I'm doing. And I have to say that I am serving black women and black community and the black community to the highest degree. And this is the lane through which I'm doing it. And mm. in no way is my work, no way am I here to serve white people. I am here to provide tools to create a safer world for the black community, for my nieces and nephews, for my mother, for, you know, all of the little girls who come up to me during my lectures and say, wow, Wow, I never had language for this. Wow, this is what I've been seeing and feeling, and I, no one told me that I was valid in it. And so, while this is the lane through which I'm serving my community, I can see how there's a lot of confusion. But I'm always happy to make it clear that what I'm doing is a means to an end, which is the service for the protection, the empowerment, the seeing of, the hearing of, the um, service of the Black community. Mm, that's. I love that you've said that, you know, you're doing this really big um, collective healing and, and, and liberating and transformational work. And when we look at white supremacy, and I know both of us, our work has really been confronting white supremacy. And we have many peers whose work is also around that. And it's, it's just really incredible to me how each one of us does it in our own unique way. Yeah. And as you said, leading leading in my way, right? And so sometimes um, that looks like, um, you know, it, it just kind of talking about your examples, like you, like you have your unpacking white feminism uh, lectures, and we'll talk about that in a moment, where you're addressing white women, but you're also, your anti-racism work, your liberation work is also that study of self. And that, um, you know, something that I love about you is that you really prioritize your joy and your pleasure as a black woman. 
and that is just as much a part of that work um, as everything else that you're doing. Um, if, if let's talk a little bit about your unpacking white feminism lecture yeah. series tour, because you've you've had like an amazing past year or so where you have been touring the country, um, doing these sold out lectures. How has that been for you, and what have been the biggest um, lessons you've learned as you've been doing that work? Yeah, this lecture tour has been incredible, um, both from what I've learned, what I've been able to teach, and the people I've been able to meet. I think one of um, one of my favorite things about this tour is that it was completely made, it was completely planned out, so to speak, by my followers. You know, people contacted me and said, "I want to bring this conversation to my community," and that's where we went. And so I think that has. Um, that has put me into a space of heightened engagement with the people because they wanted to be there. They wanted mm -hmm. to have the conversation. And so um, this tour has really been such a, such a, um, both a pleasure to be able to do what I love so much. Writing and speaking are, you know, the dreams that I had to do as a career, to do something meaningful in the world. So to do that has been great. But, um, to walk into rooms full of people eager to deep dive into a conversation has has been a joy and i think some of i think the easiest way to describe how this has been for me is the two greatest compliments i get whenever i go out and i'm able to speak to people after is one when people tell me you know rachel i really felt like i was in a college classroom you know coming to your lecture i truly felt that i was back in school sitting taking notes learning you know really intense, really intense academia. And um, I have a goal to bring this type of critical discourse to the public. I think in the academy, especially attending a school like Columbia, where it's so pretentious and there's so much uh, elitism within the world of academia, I take a lot of pride in being able to bring that type of learning to the public. All of my lectures are public, people can come in, and I have a pool of scholarship money so people who can't afford it can still attend. So that's one thing I take a lot of pride in with my lecture. The other thing is that I always have, while my audience is mainly women of color, uh, white women who are coming to learn about race, I always have such great joy when there's women of color in the room. And the other compliment that I um, often get from the women of color who come in is them telling me, you know, I never knew I could be so bold in my blackness. I never knew that I could talk to white women this way. I never knew that I could demand my respect and my voice um, and my space be taken seriously and be heard. And so again, it's one of those situations where white women think like, oh, Rachel's coming to teach us about white feminism. It also stands for a very, uh, a very real space for women of color to come in and say, okay, here are some of the points, the words, the language I can use to have this conversation in everyday spaces, such as their workplace, their neighborhood, their classroom. And so it's been um, a really special space and way for me to grow both in doing this work and to connect meaningfully with um, all of the people, all, all of my audience of my work. Mm, I, I really love that. I've, I've definitely found that the so it kind of emotional support and, and, and nourishment of Black women has really sustained me. Um, for sure. Right? And, and continues to <laughs> remind me why I do the work that I do and um, is it, there's just nothing like it. 
Yeah. Yeah. I agree. I agree. I always, I mean, I always say being in spaces with women of, with women of color is my space of healing. Mm. It's where, it's where I feel safe, most safe. It's where I feel most seen. It's where I feel most understood. And so whenever I see a woman of color in the room of my lecture or my, or of my workshop, um, I, I can, I feel like I can exhale a little bit. Mm. And so I'm, I'm deeply grateful for the women of color who also come out and, and I've also, I've also had um, these incredible experiences where women of color say, I didn't want to be here. I, I just wanted to learn. I just wanted to give you support. So they'll sit in the back of the room and they'll happily just like wave when I look back because they know how, you know, how dangerous or how violent sometimes spaces can be with all, um, white women. And so I, I feel like wherever I go in the world, there has been women of color who have my back and are happy to be there to uh, even just share space with me as a form of support. Mm, that's beautiful. Um, the, that's a great kind of jumping point for what I wanted to talk about next, which is that the work that you're doing, the work that any Black woman does when she speaks about white supremacy, white feminism is not always like candy and flowers and rainbows and unicorns, right? There's a lot of risk, both in the work that we do online and as you're doing in person as well. Let's talk a little bit about how you navigate that, how you navigate the um, I know you get a lot of comments, a lot of DMs. Um, I know you had an incident recently in person where you felt quite unsafe. Yeah. Um, how do you navigate that and kind of stay grounded in yourself? You know, it's so, so hard. And especially as I'm a very emotional person. I'm an Same. For sure. <laughs> <laughs> and it's so hard for people to believe because both of us are very strong willed in our work, mm -hmm. but that's not always a reflection of our emotions. Right. And so um, it's, it's been certainly a growth, a space of growth for me to both, um, you know, not take things personally, remembering that people are coming to me from whatever platform they're on in life and that it's, it's not about me, but also, you know, one thing that, and I went to an event with Phoebe Robinson last night and she mentioned this as well, talking about, you know, I, we get these hateful DMs, we get these comments that are just so vicious and violent. But then I remember, you know, my ancestors were chased by dogs. My ancestors were hosed down in the streets. My ancestors' babies were taken away from them. My ancestors had these moments of enslavement, of sexual violence. You know, all of these things that what I'm dealing with now are so minute compared to. So I'm learning to manage my reactions and manage my, um, you know, how much I'm bearing, I'm holding on to this stuff by kind of keeping in mind that, you know, I'm sure my ancestors wish someone just sent a bad message if that was the extent of what they were having to deal with as a result of the work they were doing in the world. So just try to keep perspective, really, I think. I really appreciate that perspective, Rachel. Um, it just gave me chills. Um, it, it's such a reminder of the privilege that we do have now. Um, and at yeah. the same time, right? Because that we, those are things that we don't have to worry mm -hmm. about. Um, and at the same time, it also reminds me of how 
much further there is still to go um, that we don't we still don't get to feel the safety that we would feel if we were privileged in the same way that white people are privileged yeah and it's you know the truth is even you know although we're not dealing with the the dogs or the hoses or all of those other very violent things that happen to the bodies of our ancestors it's coming from the same source of hate mm -hmm. so although i can separate the uh the physical manifestations of that hate from what my ancestors did that what keeps me going is that yes i'm not dealing with exactly what they did but we're still confronting the same hate that's powerful that's really powerful and and so what I'm seeing as well and what I'm what I experience and and what I see in you and, and again in my peers is that as people who are leading important conversations and important work it's really important for us to be prioritizing our self-care um, for us to be prioritizing our boundaries um, for us to be really managing our expectations. I had to learn that this year for sure. <laughs> That's yeah. something my mentor taught me, the importance of managing your expectations, that you showing up the way you're showing up and apologetically in that way is just gonna cause the reactions that it's gonna cause. Yeah. Um, and so not going into it naively and at the same time really taking care of ourselves, you know? Um, yeah. As you, as you continue, I know you've had a massive growth over the last year. As, you, as your impact continues to kind of expand, how are you managing how you stay rooted so mm -hmm. that you don't get kind of swept up? If, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, yeah. I, I appreciate that question because it is hard to, you know, keep keep your vision clear with yes. all of, with all that's a, a whirlwind around me. And I think that um, being in school definitely helps with that. Cause you know, school is such a structured process. And so it's like, you know, you do this, you get, you get this and then you move on to the next step. So I think school has definitely helped me um, keep my eye on my prize, which I mean, maybe this is a good place to, to mention, you know, school is my priority and looking, I, I'm looking to get my PhD and I'm looking to do this type of um, conversation in a college setting and continue, continuing to do it publicly. Mm -hmm. And so uh, I just happen to be interestingly building my public career before my academic career comes. So um, I think that, you know, school has helped, but also staying in deep personal and intimate conversation with women like you, with other black women who are doing this work, being reminded um, of what's happening in the minutia of this work, in the nuance of this work. Um, because with the world of social media, like there's so many podcasts we could be on, there's so many interviews we could do, there's so many, you know, collaborations that can be done. But remind, stepping back and surrounding myself with the black women who I'm on the front lines with, um, it's just a very grounding way to say, here's who I'm with and here's what we're doing. And I love what you said earlier, how there's, you know, if we consider who our peers are, we're all doing this work in such different ways. And I adore that. Mm -hmm. I love seeing the ways that we're all, um, like I said, there's a creativity to this, a creativity to saying, how am I going to show up to have this conversation? And we all do it in different ways. And so, um, 
both honoring how other people are doing the work while maintaining the way that I'm doing it as well has been a big source of pride and excitement to be able to cheer other people on and be able to um, really get down and dirty and say, you know, how do I want to show up in this space? How do I want to show up in the world doing this work? And so um, I guess the answer to that is that my grounding continues to be in my sisters and the women of color and the books that I'm reading, like you said, like Audre Lorde and all the women we're reading and just uh, being aware of and appreciating how they're showing up and that keeping me very, uh, just very open and insightful on how I'm doing that myself. Mm, I really love that. Um, it sounds like you're, vision is very clear, Rachel. I know you have many things that you are doing. You, I mean, so let's, I mean, yeah. some of the things I was, I, I made a list today of like some of the things that Rachel is, you're a student at Columbia University, Columbia University. You've got this lecture series tour, the Unpacking White Feminism tour. You're a columnist for Harper's Bazaar. Mm -hmm. um, you have a do the work 30 day course. You also um, have been fundraising a therapy fund for black girls and, and, and black women, yeah. um, which I want to talk about next. <laughs> but, you know, I, I know my capacity. I, have, I, I don't have the capacity to do all the things that you're doing right now. Um, because I, I, just, I just know myself. I know my capacity. Well, I, I always say, and I think of you often in particular, because you're a mother and you're a wife and, you know, you have very heavy responsibilities and commitments and relationships that you're managing. Mm -hmm. And I, and I often say, I'm so grateful that I'm doing this now. I don't have any kids. I'm not in a relationship. You know, I, there's, there's not, this is my time to do this. This yeah. is my, this is my time to, um, to take everything I've got and put it all in for the good of, you know, the end goal of continuing to empower and pour into communities of color. And so I am often in awe of women like you who are doing the same type of work I'm doing, but also managing all these very critical aspects of life. I couldn't imagine, I couldn't imagine doing it. So as much as I get people saying like, oh, you're doing so much, I always have to remind people that this is my focus. This is it. This is what I'm putting, this is what I'm pouring myself into right now. I don't have a part Partner. I don't have, I'm single everyone, but I'm open to a relationship. <laughs> I don't have a partner. I don't have any children. And I take a lot of pride in being able to, you know, uh, indulge in this and be super, super intentional. Mm. But um, I also, when, when this conversation comes up, I always want to remind people that a lot of other um, women who are in this work are also gloriously managing um, other aspects of life. So while my load seems heavy it's because it's what i'm giving my all to while other people have to, are, are very beautifully um managing their time and space and energy and love with other with other parts that they've created for themselves i really appreciate you sharing that because you're at, you're absolutely right i mean i remember when i first started working for myself um in 2014 and i had started to i decided to um start working on my business two weeks after my second child was born. Oh. Um, yeah, <laughs> kind of, I, I had a lot, I still have had a lot of creative energy in me, I think from the pregnancy. Um, but I, 
at first would compare myself a lot to other women who I felt were further ahead that I knew I had the same potential as, and it was, it would take longer. I was breastfeeding. I was pumping milk. I was sleep deprived. I, you know, I had all kinds of things going on. And I mean, now my kids are older, they're nine and four, um, but they they still really need me, you know? Um, And so my priorities are, you know, if I were to like, create a list I come at the top first and then my 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 family my kids yeah. and my my husband and then my work comes third um and I think it's really important for us to honor and be aware of the stage of life that we're at yeah and just and just know that where we're at if if you know if you are if someone's listening and they do feel like I don't have the capacity to do that because I have these responsibilities. I mean, I know that my kids are not going to be nine and four forever. And I also, Mm -hmm. I I think it's also worth noting, and I get this question a lot when I'm out, um, you know, speaking publicly, I have women of color raise their hand and say, you know, I just don't know how to get involved. I feel like I, I feel like I should be doing something, but I don't know how to do what you're doing. And I always remind women of color, you existing is revolutionary you being here and breathing and living and, and, you know, existing in a country, in a world that has proven over and over again that who we are as Black women um, is a threat to them Mm. or frustrates them. You existing and doing it well is enough. I, I always say, like, I'm out here doing it. Layla's out here doing it. She's out here doing it. There's and there's a whole bunch of women who I don't even know about who are out here doing it. And so, um, black women existing is is the work. And there's some of us who are taking on the work in this particular way. But for anyone who's listening who feels like, oh, I'm not doing what Rachel's doing or what Layla's doing or what any other um, of these of people who have found us via Instagram um, are doing this type of work it's not everyone's work and that's okay. And I never have any deep expectations for another um, woman of color to take on things in the way that I have taken it on. Mm. Yeah. At 100, 1000% for sure. (laughs) Um, I, I strongly agree with that. And I'm really glad that you added that. And again, it goes back to understanding where you are to where, where you want to lead from where you're called. I mean, clearly you're called to this work. Um, and so even though it's tough, the work that you're doing is tough. The conversations that you're having are hard. I, I know it gets very exhausting, but I can see also how you are so fueled by your work because you understand the purpose behind it and you're doing it in a way where you are centering yourself. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And that has a completely different quality to it when when you know why and you know that you're at the center it has a completely different quality to it agreed agreed so let's talk about your therapy fund rachel this is like i was so exciting yeah i mean (laughs) this is huge For those of for those listeners who don't know what I'm talking about, can you tell us a little bit about this therapy fund? Yeah, well, for my 30th birthday, I decided that I wanted to fundraise for something. And um, something I've been thinking about for years now is 
just my own personal deep appreciation for having access to mental health care because it's not something I always had um, continuous access to. And so I decided that I wanted to raise funds for us to start to um, make available mental health services for women and girls of color. And so I did it. I just created a GoFundMe. I remember I was sitting at a Starbucks cafe and I was like, you know what? I'm just going to do this now. I did it. I, there was all this planning that I felt like I needed to do. And I was like, no, I'm just going to do it because it needs to be done. The holidays are coming up. Those can be so hard for us, um, for anyone. And I was like, you know what? I just need to do it. So I made it. I said, this is going to be my 30th birthday fundraiser. And my first number was 10,000. When I first started it, I was like, I'd love to raise 10,000 to help a few women, of, to a few black women pay for their things therapy sessions and I posted it and uh we got to 10,000 in 24 hours wow and I was like wait this is something <laughs> this is something people are ready to invest in something people are willing to put their money towards so I uh, moved the number to a hundred thousand and we reached that number in three weeks and so I'm keeping the fun going my birthday I still have a few weeks to go and so I'm thrilled to see how much we continue to raise and it's just been absolutely incredible to see what I've been calling a you know community-led redistribution of wealth because most of my followers I'm very aware are middle class middle age white women and so their take and that's what a lot of a lot of the people who are donating are obviously from my social media community and so to see um, these funds these very very tangible tools shift in the community and go directly to black women and girls has just been incredible that that's it's so incredible Rachel and you know, again, we were speaking earlier about different ways of approaching this work of the dismantling of white supremacy. And it's not just the education piece. It's not just the information piece. It's also about the redistribution of funds and the redistribution of resources and access. And racism takes such a toll on um, people of color, especially black people who also have to deal with the factor of anti-blackness and especially yeah. black women um, and uh, non, non-cis men um, who have to deal with misogynoir. And mm-hmm. so to be able to create, a tip, tip, first of all, I, I love when I see a person who's just like, I'm go- I want to do this and I'm going to do it and I'm doing it now. And yeah. that kind of always <laughs> blows my mind a little bit because I know I can tend to overthink things sometimes or kind of think about what all the hurdles might be or you know have everything really really perfect Mm -hmm. um and so I I hope for whoever's listening that you get it you're inspired by that that if you have something an idea something that you want to do just go for it yeah don't know what could happen yeah it's it's give like give the world give the universe a chance to to surprise you you know (laughs) to take what you have you know trust that you were given something for a reason and um Layla, I think you, yeah, you commented on it. We were talking about how I had made a Facebook status just a year ago. Right. 
you know, I would love to be able, I was thinking about it for myself. I didn't, I mean, I didn't have the platform that I have now at the time, so I wouldn't have gone this avenue in the first place at that time. But I had made a Facebook post um, exactly a year ago, probably, I think three weeks, you know, about three weeks ago is when I posted it. But I shared this Facebook memory from uh, a year ago that said, I would really love to pay for, you know, uh, mental health sessions for black women. And then a year later, I had, you know, raised over $100,000 for that exact thing. And so I think that when you're, when something's planted in you, when you have this idea, it's not at random and it's not just because you have to really take into consideration that this was given to you and um, you're now tasked to live it out and the universe will give you the tools you need to move forward with it. Absolutely. I, I really think of, you know, this podcast is called Good Ancestor Podcast. And for me, the reason it's called that is because I see all of us who are living now as living ancestors. Mm-hmm. We are in a time where we have a lot of privilege and choice around how we are going to live our lives and about how we are going to leave our lives and what we're going to leave behind. Yeah. And it, I, I think it's really important for us to be thinking about regardless of if you have a platform or not, regardless of what work you do in the world, or if you're, you know, if you're, if you're, um, if you're not doing any work right now, it, it doesn't really matter. Each one of us has the potential to plant seeds that yeah. could become something really great, whether it impacts one person or a million people. For um, sure. I, I, yeah. think, I think to touch on that, um, and I've been thinking about it a lot, especially having been invited to this particular podcast with the title that it has regarding ancestors. I personally don't plan on having children. I don't have interest in birthing um, any children of my own or being a mother. And so to consider the ways that I'm still an ancestor. Absolutely. The ways that I still exist um, in a space that will affect future generations. Um, that's big. That's big to consider that, you know, we're often taught that legacy is through generational, you know, familial connection, but it's not. There's so many, there's so much we can do. And even if you do have kids, your legacy is beyond those children. Mm-hmm. It's it's for other, you know, hundreds and thousands of women and hundreds and thousands of generations after us. So for people to connect their legacy with children they might have for I I just want to encourage the people listening to really understand that you are an ancestor whether you have children or not and you are an ancestor to people beyond the children that you have so really um you know step into that consider Mm. that and your good ancestorship is critical and it's needed and it should be you know offered with as much love as you would give to your individual child but with understanding that it goes so much farther beyond absolutely i thank you so much for speaking to that again this is exactly why i called this podcast this and you know i call audrey lord my ancestor you know she's yeah, not, yeah. <laughs> she's not right really, yeah really, my, my ancestor right I'm not yet for me as well. I mean, I, I named my daughter after Maya Angelou yeah. because, you know, and, and, you know, I have my blood ancestors, but I don't have access to their writings. I don't have access to what they left behind. Um, I know they're there. I know that there must have been at least one person from my ancestry who was like me. Yeah. Um, but the, the, the um, when I think of who I turn to, it's 
um, they, they, they're not necessarily people in my lineage. Yeah. Um, you know, Audrey had two children and that I'm not one of their descendants. <laughs> But I call her, I call her my literary ancestor. Yeah. And yeah. I think of myself and, and the work that I do, my personal work is definitely about first and foremost for me as a mother, healing um, what needs to be healed in our family lines um, yeah. for my children. But then I know that beyond that, I, my work will have a legacy beyond people I will never meet, you know? Yeah. I think of Audrey and I'm like, wow, could she have imag imagined that one day a Arab, Middle Eastern, yeah. British woman living in the Middle East, you know, who writes about white supremacy to a mainly Western audience would be gaining so much nourishment yeah. um, from her work. And I think, yeah, I think she did, actually. <laughs> yeah. I think she probably yeah. did know that, yeah. you know. Yeah, um, and so that. we have to think so much further than just beyond ourselves, because yeah. we will have an impact on those around us, whether we are intentional about it or not. Yeah. And I would rather be intentional about it. Absolutely. I agree. Yeah. And so, you know, talking about the, the therapy fund, you know, the, the effect that that can have you giving you helping to give access to uh, mental, health mental health services to black girls and women, you have no idea the impact that that can have yeah. for them personally, for if they have family, friends, the, the ripple effect it will have on them. It's really profound to think about it. I think that's what I'm most excited about, to consider the fact that these women and girls, you know, they have families and they have work sites and they have all of these intersections of their existence that mental health, you know, is a part of. And so I'm thrilled to think of not only the nourishment and care that these individual women will get, but how that having been nourished and having been cared for will then further grow into the way that they're nourishing and caring for their children, their spouse, how um, empowered they feel in their work, how safe they feel in their spaces, how much they're willing, how much they're going to be willing to speak up and out about things that they might not have been before due to not having that type of um, mental health support. And so I think that there's just, I, I hope, I have a deep hope that this goes further than I could ever imagine, both in terms of making the care accessible um, I, ha I currently have a team who's working on turning turning this into a nonprofit, so we can continuously do this work. Yes, but, yes. yeah, <laughs> it's very exciting. Um, but to consider not only how we can continue to offer individual women care, but to con to consider what this care will mean for individual households, communities, um, and how that will you know expand beyond what we can imagine at this moment. Absolutely. It's just so exciting to think about it. And, um, you know, it's these, it's, it's these tangible um, actions. It's when I see women like herself doing these really tangible things that will that will really make a difference. It just, it really fortifies me and really um, strengthens me in my vision and my work as well. So thank you for being you, Rachel. Thank you for being awesome. <laughs> Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, Rachel, another thing that I wanted to talk to you about, um, your work sits at the intersection of race and womanhood. And I know a big part of being a woman is our relationship to our body. 
And I know this is something that you've wrote about. Um, I recently saw an amazing photo shoot that you did in the news. <laughs> yeah. Um, you looked amazing. Thank um, you. I would love to hear about your relationship with your body, how that's been a part of your inner and outer activism. Yeah, it's so hard. <laughs> as women our relationships with our body is so hard and I have actually gained a lot of weight in the last two years and um it's been it's been this very interesting space of both feeling empowered and feeling the normal feelings that that we often have around self-consciousness or shame um around what expectations are for our body to look like and if we don't meet that we feel a certain way about ourselves mm -hmm. and so i have been um through things like these nude photo shoots and even the clothes I wear and the conversations I'm willing to have about my body, um, it's, it's been kind of just reclaiming, reclaiming my body, reclaiming the authority to decide whether I feel good about it or not and not giving other people the space to make that decision for me. And I found that the more empowered I am within this body that I, that I exist, the more other people have space to feel comfortable, that more other people have space to be themselves. And it's and it all boils down to, I'm, I'm continuing to see it, all that boils down to, it's just a body. It's not, you know, I, I've been saying recently that regardless of how my body shifts, if I lose 50 pounds next year because I feel like it, that's not gonna change my worth. If I gain 50 pounds this year because I want to or because I have to or for whatever reason because it happens to happen, that's not gonna change my worth either. And so I'm really working on right now separating my worth from the way my body presents. Mm. And so I, um, in the, the photo that you were referring to, I had a photo shoot with iconic photographer Sarah Baba and um, one of the just a behind the scenes note that was really fun is that my Sarah was shooting me and then we had our friend Vera um, who was there also she was kind of just hanging out with us and we all were like how about we just all get naked so we were all just there naked in the apartment <laughs> doing the photo shoot just like existing in our bodies and being comfortable and feeling glamorous with you know the setting and the idea of it and so I think it really all boils down to what I'm working with right now separating how my body presents with how I feel worth and it's been revolutionary for me and my mind and I've just gotten so many messages from other women saying like thanks thanks for letting me feel okay or thanks for letting me feel like I have the option to feel beautiful regardless of what my body looks like or feels like um, in any given moment. Mm. You know I, I really have in it from, from my own journey, what I have seen is that the more I heal, the more I, do, I work on myself and work on my core wounds and work on healing my relationship with myself and defining myself for myself and all of that inner work, the more that I do that, the more it just, it, it, it opens up yeah. uh, capacity. It opens up room for other people to breathe you know, yeah. and yeah. for other people to say, hey, if she can be in that kind of a relationship for herself, maybe it's possible for me as well. Absolutely, absolutely. So much of what you're doing is is healing work. Um, I just really want to acknowledge you for that because it's, um, and, and this is for, and, and this is what I've seen for black women, 
that when we heal, when we are healing ourselves, and you said this earlier, like just existing as yourself is revolutionary. Mm -hmm. um, to move from merely surviving as black women in an anti-black world to thriving as black women yeah. in an anti-black world is, is revolutionary. And so when I see those pictures of you and when I see you really showing up, it just, it's like, yes, you know, that's like a win for all of us. Yeah, it's yeah, just, I agree. Not just Rachel's individual win, it's a win for everybody. Yeah. Yeah, and that's what I hope. That's what I hope it can be. I hope that all of our joy is all of our joy, and all of our success is all of our success. Um, and I think that I, it gives me so much joy to think that people are thinking of it that way. And I just hope we continue to do so. Mm. Yes, 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 yes. Um, Rachel, a big part of my work, one of the kind of foundational pillars of my work, and where I really started from, um, is spirituality. And I'm always really curious when I see people who are doing change-making work in the world, I'm always really curious to know what your inner spiritual life is like and how that informs your work in the world. You know, I'm currently unpacking a lot of my own personal spirituality. I grew up in the church, deep in the Black church um, in America, in the Baptist church in particular. And when I was younger, I was married from age 19 to about age 23 to a minister whose parents had their own church and we met through the church. And so um, I was just incredibly um, involved. My, my, my spirituality was incredibly rooted in the Black Baptist Church, the Black Apostolic Church. And when I left my marriage, it was a, I suddenly put myself into a space to kind of exhale and decide what I was going to inhale. Decide like, okay, what, what is it that I'm going to, what is it that I understand about myself? What is it that I understand about the world? Um, what is it that I understand about relationships and body and gender roles and you know all of these things that had been spoon-fed to me through my experience with the church and um, I, I needed to digest it or not basically and so right now I think I'm still in that space of unpacking everything that I had been taught to understand and know and believe. And it's been an incredibly wholesome journey, I would say, of making those decisions for myself. Hmm. And how does that um, impact, how does that play with the work that you do out in the world? Is there sort of a, a connection there? And even if it's not necessarily a, um, not, not necessarily religious or spiritual in the in the kind of traditional sense. Is there a kind of underpinning something bigger than yourself that you um, turn to as part of your work? You know what I'm thinking now that we're having this conversation, thinking about you know me deciding to post nude photos or me deciding to uh, use the celebration of my birthday to raise funds to invest into the black community. I think that's kind of like a a visual of what I'm exploring. I think everyone's seen me go through this journey, even though it's not something that I talk about. But I think everyone who, you know, who's part of my audience is an active, an active, um, actively looking in 
on me determining what matters to me and what I care about and where I put my faith and where I put who I believe in and what I believe in and what I'm willing to fight for and what I'm willing to let go of. And so Mm -hmm. while I can't say that I can pinpoint any specific thing, I I can definitely affirm that everything that people are seeing as I continue to grow both on my platform and my work and as a person is a continued window into me deciding what my soul is rooted in. Mm. Yes, I feel, I feel that. I feel you. Um, and I also, you know, I, I, as a kind of uh, outsider looking in, um, one of the things that I've observed about you and the way that you move in the world is that clearly you are, the work that you're doing is, is collective-based and community-based. I mean, I'll, I'll give you an example. One of the things that you do every Friday is Friend Care Friday. Right. So you have this hashtag on Instagram that you use, which is friend care Friday, where you ask um, people to like either send cash or some other kind of support to, to a friend. Um, and you're really encouraging people to take care of their people and people to really be aware of community. Um, and that feels that to me, that feels very, it, it just, it, it, when you were speaking about church earlier, mm-hmm you know, that there's that kind of, we take care of each other as a community. Yeah, for sure. I think I hadn't thought about it like that, but that's very true. Like all the value, it's not so much that I've, you know, I think all religions hold the same values, which it shows up. I agree. (laughs) And so it's not that I've lost those values, but I'm showing, I'm I'm bringing it to the world in a way that is authentic to me. Yes. That's definitely what I see. And it's so interesting because I never thought about it that way, but that's so true. It is so true. (laughs) And, you know, I, um, I think I'd commented, I think you'd had a friend care Friday recently that was specifically for black women. And I commented on on it and I said, thank you. And you said, make sure to, you know, drop your PayPal. And I was like, oh, it's just in the link in my bio. And then that day and a couple of days following, I got so many friend care Friday donations. And I was like, (laughs) look at Rachel just taking care of black women, just, you know, taking, just giving us these unexpected um, moments of joy. And that, that feels like um, exactly as you were saying, you might not necessarily follow the religion in the same way, but there's those basic values of we take care of one another. Yeah. Um, And I, I think it's wonderful that you are using your platform and your voice. Um, in that way, right? Because, you know, earlier I was asking you about how do you stay grounded as you grow so you don't get swept up? Mm-hmm. And um, I love that, you know, this just as one example, this Friend Care Friday act that you are, no matter what's happening, no matter what all the distractions are and all the opportunities and everything that's coming your way, you're really clear this is something that is important to me. I have yeah. to make sure that the community is taken care of. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> so I remember when you wrote that and I was like, girl, this this is for you, this friend care. Yeah, Everyone I totally knows. did not agree no, myself. I was just like, that's great. <laughs> I know, and you know what? It's It blows my mind because it, this, this theme, I don't want to say theme, but this thought process is showing up with my therapy fund as well. And it, it just blows my mind because there's black women who say, oh, Rachel, I just donated to your therapy fund. And I'm like, okay, thanks. Did you sign up too? Like, why, why did you sign? You know, like, it, 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 it I feel you. 
I mean, for sure, when you when you said also add your name, I was in my mind, I was like, what do you mean? You know? <laughs> um, and that's because, you know, I do have um, a lot of people supporting my work and I do have, um, you know, I do have a lot of support. And so I was like, well, this can go to other people who need it more. Um, but I think what you're what you're saying is also really valid, which is that I'm still a black woman in an anti-black world. Yeah, um, and there's and and there's the only qualifier, the only qualifier for, qualifier for my therapy fund, the only qualifier. I mean, I don't really have a qualifier per se for Friend Care Friday. That's for anyone. But you know, being a black woman is is the period, like end of sentence. Yes, <laughs> like there, there's no there's no other explanation needed. There's no other qualifier. There's no other you know prove proving that needs to be done. That's it. That's what I'm here for. That's where that's why I'm showing up. And so it it. It surprises me, especially with talking again to the therapy fund. I have people sign up and then they email me this long email about why they want the therapy. And I'm like, girl, I made the form three questions for a reason. Right. I, didn't want you, I didn't want you to have to pour, you know, relive your trauma. I didn't want you to have to feel like you were proving or trying to tell me why you deserved it. I wanted you, I wanted you to just tell me who your therapist is and I just want to put money on the books for you. That's it. There's nothing more that I need to make this valid or make this something that you deserve. But we, we're still working through, um, those feelings of needing to do things like that. Yeah. And I, and I, and I think, I, I think that's part of being a woman period Yeah, and, and definitely of being a black woman period, um, of that need to, that, that feeling of, first of all, that we, that we need to be strong, right. Mm -hmm. the, the strong black women. And then that if we're, if we're going to be given something, we need to prove that yeah. we're in enough pain that we should yes. deserve it. Yes. And I'm done with that. On done. So many levels. Right. <laughs> pain pimping and that kind of thing. Because yes we shouldn't have to do that. It's dehumanizing. Yeah. Yeah. I'm with you. Um, okay, Rachel, we're coming towards the end of our interview. Um, I want to know what have been the hardest parts of your journey and the most joyful parts of your journey so far. Oh, the, the most, well, I'll start with the most joyful because that's easy. That's easy to think about. I think the most joyful um, has been the people I've met, the sisters I've gained, the community that has been built miraculously around me. Um, you know, as much as we hate social media, <laughs> it's as annoying and frustrating, distracting as it can be, it has been just this incredible garden of quality people, of incredible sisterhood, of outlandish education that I'm just so, so grateful for. And I think that um, the community, I remember, you know, being younger and I didn't have a lot of friends per se. Like I had, you know, schoolmates and things like that, but I always felt that I was missing out on deeper connections with people and it seemed like everyone else had them. And so I feel like uh, I just landed in this big cloud of everything I had been praying for in terms of meaningful connection with people. Um, and I don't take I don't take it for granted one bit. As far as the most difficult, I think uh, I think the growing pains. I mean, I've my my you you and I have followed each other for a while, but my platform has grown so quickly, and I think that there's definite growing pains that have come with it. Um, and so as I, I mean, I'm 
incredibly grateful for for existing in a space where I get to continuously be pushed to think harder mm. and do more and be more critical and gain more understanding. But it's hard. It's hard. It's a hard place to be in. And so um, I sometimes just want to delete everything and hide <laughs> the covers and eat chocolate pretzels and no one know who I am yeah. you know I'm, just, I, I'm in and I don't know if it's ever happened to you but I'm, I'm in this space where like people are recognizing me in public mm. and so I, I was at it's a place called Shake Shack in New York City I was at yeah, we, I, have, we have Shake Shack here oh yeah. my gosh wonderful yes. so I was at Shake Shack and I was like it was after a day of classes and I was just feeling exhausted and who knows what I looked like and a girl comes up to me and's like are you Rachel Cargo and I want to be like no I'm not <laughs> <laughs> You know, it was was just a day where it was just a hard day. And to have, um, I think the hard part is just to go through these growing pains um, with an audience like this can be difficult sometimes. Mm, I I feel that. I mean, I have, um, I I will, when I, uh, because we've, I think we've both been through very big jumps in a short amount of time. Yes. And something that I, have seen is very important for myself is sustainability. Yeah. And so I'm constantly thinking about how I can um, make sure that I'm in the driver's seat. Yes. And yes, not yes, yes. other people's um, purposes. You know, Audrey Lord has this quote and she says, um, she says, there's two of them. She's one of them is if I didn't define myself for myself, I would be crunched into other people's fantasies of me. Yes, yes. And then there's another one where she talks about, again, this idea of defining ourselves for ourselves, but that if we don't do it, that, that other people, and I'm paraphrasing here, but that other people will define us and that it will usually be to their benefit yeah. and to our detriment. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. Um, I feel that. Yeah. <laughs> I feel that completely. Right. And that's a hard part of doing this work too. Yeah, for sure. Right. And so I often think about that because I think when you're in a leadership position, first of all, as human beings, this is, we all do this. As human beings, we have this tendency to put people on a pedestal. Yeah. Even when we don't want to be put on a pedestal, we tend to yes. do it to other people. Right. <laughs> And so I know that there are people who see, uh, when you see someone in a leadership position that you project onto them what you want, Yeah. right? You project onto them what you want. And then when they don't meet those expectations and they don't meet those definitions and those demands, we usually tear them down. And I think it's really important for anyone who's in a leadership position to be, uh, first of all, and again, I really, I really want to credit my mentor, Dr. Frantonia Pollins, for the work that she's helped me with around this. But I think, first of all, it's really important for us to define ourselves for ourselves so that other people are not defining us for us. Mm-hmm. And then secondly, to be constantly checking in and, say, and seeing, am I in control right now? Or is, who, who's, who's in the driver's seat? And I have found, and I don't know if this is something that you do, but I have found it really important to actually, when things are moving really fast, to actually consciously slow them down. Yeah, for sure. I, um, I agree with you 100% on that. And in my, also being um, 
aware of how I want to slow down. I know I was so inspired when you took that break from Instagram. <laughs> we were, I was, I was so inspired and I was and I remember thinking like, Oh, I would love to take a break from Instagram, but that's not my slow. That's not what looks, that's not what looks right. most productively slow for me personally. Right. And so, you know, I took a trip to Paris and I, there's, there's just been other ways that I've been able, you know, I moved apartments and I did all of these little things that equaled what you did, but we, we both were being intentional and caring for ourselves and and regaining control. And so, um, yeah, I totally agree that not just slowing down, but knowing how we need to slow down where we need to, um, and being in control of what we know feels good and is our, our particular needs. Um, but yes, I was incredibly inspired by your, by your time away. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> yeah, I think it's so important what you just said about knowing that self-awareness around what does that yeah. look like for me? Because um, it doesn't have to look like someone else's. I just disappear, basically. That's yeah. It. <laughs> if, I, if I was if I was to do that, I would feel anxious the whole time. Right. right. It, it wouldn't be it wouldn't be a way for me. I I'd be thinking about like I'd have something like oh I'd really love to share this or I'd really love to write something and that would not be a break for me. Right. And so you know I had to be intentional. Okay, I I'm never going to do this. Layla, this is not so, realistic. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's not realistic for how I exist in the world. Mm-hmm. So let me let me do what I need to do to exist this way. And Absolutely. um, I've I've enjoyed observing how we all do all of us who are doing this work you know listening to Shishi talk about her therapy um hearing how Kendriana is taking her work you know her artist uh work onto Patreon and I just I I love seeing all of us being intentional and in control of how we're showing up amen amen Rachel thank you so much for such rich conversation um it's been so, I can't believe it's our first time talking. Like, I know, this is a long time coming. Yes, and I feel like uh, I feel like I've known you forever, and this yeah. um, this conversation has been really it's really nourished me. So thank you so much for bringing your whole yeah. self here. I'm so thrilled to be here, and I'm so beyond excited for the continuation of this podcast. Um, you're a good ancestor for getting this started. Thank you, my love. So our <laughs> final question, we're going to close out. This is our final, final question, Rachel. What does it mean to you to be a good ancestor? For me, being a good ancestor, um, it's showing up. It's showing up and doing you know, doing what you can with what you've got. And for all of us, that looks different. For some, it's the way we care for our children. Um, For some, it's the way we do our work. For some, it's the way, you know, we stand boldly. And I think that all of our ancestry will look incredibly different and there's beauty in that. And that showing up in the way that you understand yourself and in the way that you know yourself and uh, your tools and your talents and your skills, um, oftentimes we sit back in the comfort of uh, just going with the flow of life, of daily routine, of systematic understandings of life. And I think that showing up um, is the roots of good ancestry. How you take it from there can be as creative or as different as you need it to be, but we all need to show up. Mm, Wonderful message to end with, show up. Thank you so much, Rachel. Thank you. I hope that this episode has helped you gain new insights and find deeper answers to what being a good ancestor means to you. 
We'd love to hear what some of your aha moments have been from this conversation. You can follow the podcast on Instagram at at Good Ancestor Podcast. And drop us a comment to let us know what some of your biggest takeaways have been. Thank you for listening and thank you for being a good ancestor.